Good morning. We'll go ahead and uh, release the youngins. You are free to go get learned up. Head on back. Your teachers are waiting for you. And as they go, um, would you just join me in just a, a breath uh, prayer? Jesus, bless our kids. Oi. I, uh, I want to uh, start this morning, or maybe I'll tell you who I am first. My name's Adam. Um, first, let me thank all of you for uh, the, the work and the, the service that was all provided last week as we prepared and then uh, celebrated Tara at her funeral on Friday. I, I appreciate everyone that... Uh, you worked hard, worked well with compassion, and it was something that, uh, that helped. It was, it was an immense help to me personally, uh, but I, I really do think that on, on Friday afternoon, we were able to celebrate our friend, and we did so uh, with, as family, and as hard as it was, it was a good celebration. Um, this is one thing that, that if this is your first time with us, we, we've uh, suffered a loss. Uh, one of our, our staff members, our ministry coordinator, Tara Sinkler, was, was killed in a traffic accident. We celebrated her life last week. Uh, more than a staff member, Tara was, was family and central to everything. And because she was central to everything, this is something that, that as a family, we are going to feel for a while. And, and so I want to just speak very briefly on, on how we're going to feel that. We're going to feel that every time we do something for the first time without Tara. This is going to be something that, that for the next year, every new thing that we've, like the last time, she was, she was the one telling us about it up here. This is something that I know that, that, that starting a service without her up here is just, it's weird, it's odd. And as much as I love Harlan, <laughs> it's just not the way just not the way. And so we're going to go through that stuff together. We're going to, f- to feel healing come. We will feel the presence of the Holy Spirit. We will be together. We will do this together, and we will demonstrate that the power of, of the gospel is that, that nothing can stop it, and even this will not stop what we do as a church family. So Man, we're going to have moments where it's going to hit us. We're going to have moments where we're going to go, uh, we're going to have like long periods of time where we're going to be okay, and then it's going to come back, and, and it's going to be something that it always will be, just like, like a piece of Harlan's scripture last week, you know, building, uh, using rocks to build a monument to a moment in time. This is a moment in time for our church, but when we, we're building this on a trail, and the trail doesn't end here. One very difficult task that, that lies ahead, and something that I want to let you know is, is happening now is that we do have uh, a position posted for, for ministry coordinator, and, and this is our first step in moving forward. We're not moving on from Tara, but we are moving forward, and, and part of that is um, rebuilding things that need to be rebuilt, and so the, the job description has been uh, posted in, in several places, and, and this is my plan. Um, we post it, and then we see. I don't know what happens. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll either get somebody or we won't. And if we don't, then we'll go to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, then plan C. I mean, there are tons of, of 
letters in the alphabet. You know, we'll hit them all if we need to. You know, if we need to double some up, we'll, we'll figure it out. But, um, but I wanted to let you know that, uh, that that is posted, that we are moving into that process. And, and I, you know, that it's one of those, um, it's, very, it's, it's difficult, but it's also necessary. And so it's begun. And if you're interested in seeing that job description, you can just let me know. Um, I can email it to you. Um, but uh, th that's where we are with that. Uh, one of the things that, that, that I want to do is just say that, that um, you know, this is where you think about all the ways. I mean, the, the enemy is, he's a bastard, man. And he's going to try to use some things to get into the family. He's going to use everything that he can to get into uh, the, just in the midst of all the places where the Holy Spirit is. And, and so we're not going to allow that because we're going to communicate clearly. If you have a question, please bring it to me, and I will answer it honestly and, and, and fully. If you don't hear something from my mouth, do me a favor. Assume I didn't say it, okay? If you hear me say it, I said it. If you didn't hear it come from my mouth, I didn't say it, all right? And the reason I say that is because as we move forward through this process, I want you to be clear. We will be transparent. We will let you know. We'll keep you updated, and, and every announcement that we have will come from this place, and only this place. So, um, if you have any questions as we move through this together, if there's just, you just need more time to process, if you need to, to just speak with somebody, just let us know, and we will continue to move forward. So, um, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just... We acknowledge that you are here with us. And Father, we do, we, we, our starting place is to say, blessed be your name. We ask that you would be here with us, that you would make your presence known to us, that we would just feel you thick with us. I pray that, that you would release the gifts of your spirit here. I pray that you would keep us from the work of the enemy. Would you bind him in the name of Jesus? Father, as we transit through the valleys and the mountains, would every step, would we be closer to each other and because of that, be closer to you. So would you bless our time together as a family this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are this summer going through a series we're calling The Rest of the Story. And this is a, a, a walk through a handful of stories in Scripture that when the rest of the story is understood, it helps us to make sense of the Bible it helps us to make sense of, of God and who he is. It helps us to make sense of who we are in relationship to God. It helps us make sense of what God is up to, especially in those moments when it feels like he's taking his hand off the wheel. Or those pieces of, of scripture where we look at the story and say, what, how is that even, like, how is that holy? How is that in scripture? What we're seeing as we go through this is that, that all Scripture moves us towards one purpose. It's moving us through one plan 
And what we're seeing as well with that is that nothing can stop this plan. This one complete narrative that we have, this one unified story that is Scripture, beginning to end, it details God's interaction with his creation, and it, reveal, it reveals his plan for that creation. This historical narrative also unlocks the truth of who God is, who we are, and how we can live in relationship with him. When we see the story, and then when we see the rest of the story, we're able to see past this limited view of, of the current situation. We're able to see past what is directly in front of us or directly around us or maybe directly behind us. We're able to, able to see beyond all of those things and into the reality of the, the narrative of God's love for us and his intentions for us. John, in his gospel, he points to this truth in the very opening of his work, and this has been the foundation of our series this summer, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, you all know when the beginning was, right? It was the beginning. The Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. That's a pretty powerful way to end that. One story, one plan, from before creation to the blessed hope of the return of Jesus, and a reality as reality was always intended to be. Today, the story that we consider is one of my favorite, the second favorite. We're going to do my favorite favorite, uh, the last of the uh, uh, Sunday in August. This is also the last of the stories in this series that we're going to be in the Old Testament. My favorite Old Testament story, and, and this actually probably demonstrates a little bit of, uh, of, of brokenness in, in my mind about why I like this story. Um, but I feel like it, it, when, when we talk about how uh, we are created in the image of God, Watching God direct some of the stuff that happened in this story makes me think, yeah, I could be like that. But we are in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, this, this is going to be the story. We're going to be talking about the contest on Mount Carmel. I love this story. But because we're talking about the rest of the story, we're actually going to spend very little time in the story because of all of the rest of the story and the implications. I just want it to be known that this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, but let me throw out a spoiler. And this spoiler comes from the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. The rest of the story, what we find in this, when we get to the end what we've seen in every story so far in this series, all of it is Jesus. But you still have to listen for a few more minutes. The rest of the story. Let me paraphrase the story leading up to the rest of the, the story leading to the story that'll take us to the rest of the story. Before we get to 1 Kings 18, we're going to pick up in, in verse, uh, verse 16 
of chapter 18 in just a moment, but uh, we got to go back in history quite a bit further to kind of create the context for what we're dealing with today. Last week, Harlan talked about the nation of Israel's entrance into the promised land, the land promised by God, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1400 BC-ish. For the first three and a half centuries that the nation of Israel was in this land promised by God, the king of this nation was God himself. After that moment, or, or during that time, after, after Joshua, after Moses and Joshua, we see that, that judges, they take the place of Moses and Joshua, which exposed a decline in the relationship between God and his people. Now, the generation that experienced the wilderness with Moses and the generation of conquest that was with Joshua, had, had, these events had created eyewitnesses of God's signs and wonders and the power that God has to save and deliver. These are, I mean, we're talking about, they were there. They saw all of this stuff happen. For them, there was no question that God had power, that God was the Almighty, because they saw everything firsthand. These generations experienced God. They saw the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. They were fed the manna and the quail. They, had, they were brought out of Egypt and saw the Red Sea part. They were with Joshua and they walked around Jericho and they saw those walls fall. They saw the power of God manifest in front of them. These generations had no doubt where the power was. But then there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is Judges chapter 2. This is an indictment on both the young and the old of the nation of Israel. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A generation that does not know what the generation that went through the wilderness the generation of conquest, they don't know the power of God. This is how the book of Judges starts. And, and what we see here is, is interesting because we're seeing a decline. And, and in this decline, this is one of those things that I often wonder what would happen if, if just like word for word, if, if a movie script was made from the book of Judges. I wonder what would happen because if you think about like that, that motion picture association that puts the ratings down, I wonder what, how they would rate the book, the book of Judges. I really think if they saw a movie for the book of Judges, they'd be like, you're out of your freaking mind. There is no way we, we are showing this. There is no way we are going to show. that like, this is, We can't even rate this R. What comes after R? Like, no one should watch this. This, this is the reality of the book of Judges. How did it get this way? This is an indictment on both the young and the old. The young have to own their own behaviors. The young have to own their own behaviors. But we have to ask, the older generation, what happened to your testimony? What happened to the faith that the wilderness generation had that the conquering generation had, what happened to the testimony, what happened that led people to stop talking about the power of God? Because while the young people have to own their own actions, 
They don't know the story because no one told them. We're going to talk about compromise a little bit this morning as we get further into the rest of the story. The first thing that we see compromised is testimony. Testimony has left the nation of Israel. What we see in this is that historical memory transcends the individual. It is a corporate cultural expression. Historical memory. When historical memory is lost, identity is lost. And so even before we get to the story, one piece of the rest of the story is that we have to ask this question. We have to consider, how can a real God be real to people that have never heard about him? And another is, what led to the place that God could be forgotten? After what he has done, how was God forgotten? A very general answer to this, and one we're going to deal with extensively this morning, a specific focus of the rest of this story, the answer is compromise. And our first compromise here is that compromise of testimony. The loss of testimony demonstrates further compromises as it applies to relationship. The farther we get from the work of God, the less we talk about it. We've got to think about that for a second. The further we get from what God has done in our life, the less we talk about it, the less we think about it, the less we proclaim it. Now, we're going to deal with, with, with another reality here in a moment, but we need to deal with this because this is actually one of the, the largest problems of the church today, and not just our church, but the church global, is that, that we're losing testimony because one of the things that you can see, I mean, you can look at, at um, Barna Research Group, uh, Pew Research Group, anybody that ever studies church, they will tell you that, that folks are at their, the, the height of, of evangelism right after they are saved. After, the further they get from that moment of, of salvation, the, furthest, the further they get from the moment of baptism, the less they share with others about the work of the Lord. It actually falls off quite dramatically. And then we're back into this question of, of reading in, in, second judge, or in, in chapter 2 of Judges uh, that, that this generation was so far away from God, we can see how it happened, and we can see the historical precedent for it. And so we can start to see the problem with the compromise of testimony. This is something we've got to talk about. It's something that we have to deal with. We know that this is as true today as it was then. That when the focus of relationship is not on the other, when the focus of relationship is on self, the relationship decays into the boneyard of selfishness and self-focus. The generations that, that had witnessed became focused on other things. Things of their will rather than the will of God. Some of it could just be survival, forgetting who the provider was, forgetting who the sustainer was, 
working in their own power just to survive. But we also see when the immediate threat and need for rescue is removed, true relational depth emerges. If crisis, you know, you think, I would argue that the nation of Israel had a, had a crisis or two. If crisis, hardship, and tragedy are the only motivations for relationship, when those things are no longer present, the utility of relationship no longer exists. Now we can see what led to the loss of testimony. They were saved. Rescued. Crisis, hardship, and tragedy motivating the relationship when those things were answered, the utility of the relationship no longer existed. Because if the actions of the other during the rescue do not lead to love, relationship will not exist. The state of the nation of Israel before and during our story today is a prime example of this. Love for the Lord did not result. So when tragedy and hardship and crisis no longer prevailed, the utility of a relationship with him was gone, and with it the testimony went too. This exposes a self-focus and a selfishness that the rescued were only focused on their position and improving that position. There are other motives, though, for compromise, right? It's not, this is not the only one. Um, fear, lack of faith, a desire for material things, all of these are motivations for compromise. We see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 and 13, a great example of fear as a compromise. Uh, probably like the... This is... You know, if, you are, if you are in that place of, of, you know, kind of measuring your own behaviors as like, at least I, would, I haven't done that, this gives some husbands some hope. As he, he was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarah, look, you're a very beautiful woman. That's a very nice compliment, right? When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, let's kill him, and then we can have her. So please tell them that you're my sister. Then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. I mean, that kind of stands for, I mean, that's a compromise. And it's a compromise built out of fear. And you think about the relational degradation that must have, uh, have come from that. That is a self-focus. That is selfishness. That is, you suffer whatever you need to suffer just so they don't kill me. Compromise. My hope is that at this point you're realizing I'm, I'm presenting compromise as, as a negative. Galatians chapter 2. Another example. Fear motivating 
compromise. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. This moment of fear of like, oh my gosh, I don't want them to see me eating with these people. I'm I'm not going to be over there anymore. It led to others being like Peter. Peter, afraid of his reputation taking a hit, afraid of of some conflict with with religious folks, afraid leads him to compromise, and he, he degrades relationship in the compromise. Another example of Peter compromising out of fear is the denials of Jesus during the, the, the passion narrative that we see. It, this is something that we're going to discuss uh, in depth the last week of this series. But another example, Peter denying to have even known Jesus during the trial before the crucifixion. Examples of compromise that come as a result of fear. Now, one of the things that we can say is, is it's very easy to stand back and, and call this out. It's very easy for me to look at Abraham and say, like, what a moron. What were, like, how did you not get beat by, for that? How did she agree to that? It's easy to say those things. It's easy to look at Peter and be like, come on, man. Really? Like, you walked with Jesus. You should be like him. It's easy for us to say those things. But I also know it's easy when fear comes to compromise. And so rather than look at them in judgment, we can look at them as examples. We can look at them and say, this is the danger. We can apply this to our own walk as a family. We can help each other through this and turn back to Jesus in the face of fear. Lack of faith also leads to compromise. We talked about this earlier in the series, Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had, had not been able to bear children for him, but, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can, I can have children through her. And Abram agreed to Sarah's proposal. Another example of compromise, of, of saying, I don't have faith that God's going to do what he says that he's going to do. I don't have faith that God is going to operate the way that, that, that he said that he would, uh, especially as it relates to time. He's not moving fast enough for me, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so we compromise and proclaim a lack of faith. Again, not sitting in judgment, this is something that, 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 for me, I can see as certainly a, a point of, of uh, compromise, a, a lack of faith. I, I, have, I have great plans that God won't work fast enough in. I have never seen success, though, when I've gotten ahead of God. And I've taken some pretty, pretty spectacular spills Lack of faith leading to compromise degrades relationships. Also a desire for material things. In Matthew chapter 13, we see the seed that fell among the thorns represent those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, and no fruit is produced. 
this is really a competition of wills. One of the things that can breed compromise is our will being in competition with the will of God, especially as it relates to material things. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, a very hard passage of Scripture. Um, at least for me, it has been, uh, but also a very revealing one of the danger of compromise. Uh, but there was a certain man named Ananias and, uh, who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit. You kept some, some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. But after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. You were lying to God. Compromise. Second Timothy, Paul writing letter to Timothy, he's writing also about how this affects believers. Demas has deserted me because he loves the things of this life and has gone to Thessalonica. Demas deserts Paul because he loves the things of this life. He compromises his will over the will of God. Rather than, than worship God, rather than see him as a provider, rather than see him as, as a sustainer, as a rescuer, as worthy of honor, for the selfish people of the nation of Israel, he had finished the job. He pulled them out of the ditch. They were free to continue down the road, and they chose to do so without him. So from the identity and the historical memory perspective, rather than God saved us and we are his, the narrative is lost because the need for rescue is not apparent anymore. And with that, the will of, of, the, of, of self over the will of God, we see ambition for sex, money, and power, and, and faith is, is in self rather than faith being in God. Identity, then, is, is not uh, created by relationship with God. Identity doesn't flow out of, of our, our, our son and daughtership of God. Identity comes from the competitiveness of the community as they seek to sustain themselves. Now, in this generation between Joshua and the monarchy, we saw in, in Judges chapter 2 that, that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The evil described in the books of, of Judges should be understood as Israel's progressive decline into idolatry that flows from a compromise of identity. The nation of Israel was originally designed by God to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation set apart. But by the end of the book of Judges, Israel had become like, and in some cases much, much worse, than all of the other nations around them. This is the product of their compromise. Unable to save themselves, Israel asks for a human king to help. But this ends in the way that it started, relational decay due to more compromise. 
Solomon, son of David, is a study of many things. One of them, though, is how compromise leads to idolatry. Captured in 1 Kings chapter 11 and used as an example by the prophet Nehemiah in, in Nehemiah 13, Solomon's indulgence in women led him away from God and brought pagan worship into the nation of Israel. It, began, it, it, it allowed pagan worship to be normative in the nation of Israel. Solomon had like 700 wives, and for good measure, he threw in around 300 concubines. This, like, that's a problem. That doesn't evidence anything good. Also, we have to keep in mind that this is like, th- th- this is the example of wisdom. From this same man came wisdom, and, and we have it captured in Holy Scripture. Wisdom that is only, uh, only points to the fact that, that, that the Holy Spirit was with him, and yet he still compromised. These thousand women were women from all over the known world, and they brought their pagan religion with them. And to keep them happy, he allowed them to practice and even practice their religion with them. He not only allowed, but participated. There's so much more in that story. But for us today, suffice it to say that that with the lost testimony of God, And without the urgent need of his rescue, the nation of Israel created an identity apart from God, influenced by the world, that led to conflict and destruction. They forgot who they were and tried to create their own path. Because division is always the result of sin in a community. The nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah, because kings coming after Solomon followed in the same path that he took. The kingdom of Israel is led by a series of of progressively worse dudes, each one more selfish and more evil than the last. Which brings us to the events of 1 Kings chapter 18. The nation of Israel is in deep drought as a result of their relationship, or lack thereof with the Lord. They're in a deep drought, a direct consequence of that lost relationship. The king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel, have taken the evil actions of of the monarchs that, that came before them. They brought them to new heights. They persecuted the priests and the prophets of, of the nation of Israel that still followed the Lord, um, one of them being Elijah, who we're going to, to see here in a moment. When we join this story in verse 16, we're in the third year of the drought. Israel is suffering the effects of heat with no rain. We can see this as a natural consequence of God not being at the center of of order for this community. Elijah is the prophet that announced this drought coming, and and believe it or not, that didn't actually work out too well for him. Uh, He was in hiding and uh, feared for his life. But he's about to come back on the stage in 1 Kings 18, jumping into the story in verse 16. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Then Ahab saw him, and he exclaimed, So, is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? 
I love that. Like, what an awesome, I, he should have like, like a badge created, troublemaker of Israel. Because the trouble that he, he, the troublemaker of Israel, the reason he made trouble for him is he was the mouthpiece of God. And he said, hey, turn from your idolatry or there's a drought coming. And a drought came. But he's the troublemaker, right? Troublemaker of Israel. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Bring all of your pagan worshipers to the mountain. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. In other words, what Elijah is saying here is, listen, you can't do both, one or the other. You either put God at the center of your order, or you allow something else to be the center of the order. But you cannot go through life in this place of, of back and forth, of, of, of God can have this stuff over here, but he can't have this stuff over here. I'll trust him to handle this, but I need to be the boss of, of, of this over here. He's saying that, that you cannot separate your life in that manner. It's either all or none. Because if it is separated, you've actually already decided all or none. You pick the none. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who is left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls. The prophets of Baal may choose whichever one they wish and cut into pieces and lay it on the wood of their altar, but without setting fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You go first, for there are many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it. Call on the name of your God, but don't set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it in the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us! But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. At noontime, about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. This is where my joy of the story comes in. And this isn't exactly, it's not mature. This is just awesome. You'll have to shout louder, he scoffed. For surely he is a god. Perhaps he's daydreaming. Or he's relieving himself. Maybe he's on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. This is awesome. Where's your god? Maybe he ran out of toilet paper. Maybe you should get him some toilet paper so he can come out here and be a part of this. Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he slept in. Where's your god? You put your faith in this. 
I don't know if you saw this earlier in this, but, but after there was no reply of any kind, they started dancing and hobbling around. They're trying to like, like coax, okay, come on, please do something for us. Elijah shows how ridiculous this is. When you are worshiping a counterfeit God, you get counterfeit results. So they shouted louder, and following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. They got to the point of sacrificing themselves. They're they're mutilating themselves. They are doing everything they can to try to get this to work. Then Elijah called to the people, come over here. They all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one to represent each of the tribes of Israel. And he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar He cut the bowl into pieces and laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. Now think about what's happening here. We're in a drought. We're not talking about turning on the spigot at the campground and filling up your jug. They had to walk somewhere to a spring to get water. They're on on Mount Carmel. So this is going to take a while to go fill up the jugs with water and come back. At the usual time for offering the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed. He's praying at an altar that had been soaked in water. He's praying at an altar that there, there is absolutely nothing that he could do to create fire. Rather than, than thinking about hobbling around, dancing around, trying to get God to do something, cutting himself, he created a situation where nothing could be done. Even if he wanted to set this on fire, he couldn't. It's soaked. They soaked it three times. There's, like, there's so much water here, the, the, saturated. Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. I really like that line because it encaptures the, uh, that this is the entire This is the meta-narrative of Scripture right here. You, O Lord, are God. You have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from the heavens and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine fire that burned up stones. It even licked up all the water in the trench 
not in the power of Elisha. And then all the people saw it. They fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, Seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all. Elijah took them down to the Kijon Valley and killed them there. The nation of Israel had forgotten who God was, had put their hope in things other than God, and the natural results occurred. This is a constant danger for anyone who is the highest power in their own life. God demonstrates his power in relation, in relation to the counterfeit power of pagan gods. God demonstrates his power contrasted to the power of counterfeit order. The only path out of the destruction of compromise is faith in God. The only path for the nation of Israel in this story out of the the natural consequence of compromise is faith in God. Placing God at the center of order. Stepping away from a competition of orders, of having one side over here for God and one side over here for me. For us, the only path out of the destruction of compromise is faith in Jesus. We have seen throughout this series, this summer together, we have seen that faith is the outcome of love. And love is the only response that makes sense when we see what Jesus has done for us. When we talk about all of the things that God did for the nation of Israel and we ask the question, how does that not lead to love? We then turn that question back on ourselves and we look at all of the things that God has done for us. Beginning with salvation, with opening up a route that we can have a relationship with God, that we can actually say, God, you are the center of my order. Beginning with that and all of the things he did from that moment forward. The only thing that makes sense is to see the love that God has for each of us. This is not just some haphazard stuff that happened. This is not God just trying to make himself look good. This is all. This, this whole narrative of Scripture is a testament for his love, his love for us, that his desire for our lives is to be in right relationship with him. The only response that makes sense when we see what Jesus has done for us is to respond in love. This is how we remain. This is how we maintain our identity. This is how we maintain our testimony. By allowing the work that Jesus has done for us to change us and turn us towards love. Jesus is the king that when ushered into the human heart brings the power of the creator the power that was on display at Mount Carmel 
Jesus is a king that brings this power. We saw it in that, that foundational verse for this series in John chapter 1. He was there at the beginning. He is the bringer of the power of the creator God. When the response to the entry of this king is love, adoration, worship, and a life changed that is reoriented with God at the center, we see the fulfillment of this power by the fulfillment of the promises that he's made to us. And we see the word spread as we tell others what Jesus has done for us. And that is the rest of the story. As we turn back to worship, I, I want to pray this prayer over us. This, is, this prayer was, was written by a friend of, of Brad Hudson, and it is so powerful for us in hearing this message. So let's pray. Lord, forgive us for self-reliance that crowds out the need for your Holy Spirit and dulls us to what you want us to see and hear. Forgive us for that, Lord. Forgive us for any way we have allowed the evil influences of this age to infiltrate our thoughts, words, and actions, where we have carried an offense, contributed to division, or entertained any sense of entitlement. Forgive us, Lord. Help us surrender anything we are holding back from you so there is no obstacle to the flow of the Holy Spirit through our lives. Increase our expectation that you will empower us with supernatural gifts because of your great love for those yet to know you. Lord, consider the increased hostility and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.